going back centuries and millennia, people have always had an impact on our environment because we're part of it. I don't think it's it's not productive to think of ourselves as separate from the environment because we're always going to need a place to live. We're always going to need a place to get our food from, whether that's growing it or hunting and gathering or what have you. So we will always have an impact, but that doesn't have to be a negative thing necessarily. All right, everyone. So now on the podcast, I'd like to welcome Chris Piper of Taproot of Lancaster, New Hampshire. Chris, thank you so much for coming on Best Frag today. Hi, Anastasia. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So to open it up, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and about Taproot? So my name's Chris, and I live in Littleton, and I've been in the North Country since early 2018. I originally hail from upstate New York in the Saratoga Springs area. I grew up in an area that's similarly rural, a lot of farms. We always had a large vegetable garden in our backyard. And so I've always kind of been connected to the food system, even just passively growing up with farms all around me. And as I went through school and in my career since then, I've had a strong interest in local foods and specifically how all of that ties in with the social and environmental issues in our communities. I am the food access coordinator for Taproot, and that in that job, I've kind of found that it's brought a lot of all of that together. Taproot's mission really focuses on the ways that people, our environment, and our food are interconnected. We offer programs in a few different areas, education, environmental stewardship, food access, and sort of overall supporting local growers through our marketplace and other ways. And all these programs focus on strengthening those connections that I talked about specifically in our communities here in the North Country. And in my job, I mostly work with the food access side of things, but just by nature, there's a lot of overlap and ways that the programs are connected with each other. So I might have a role in the education programs from time to time or ways that I'm working with the staff in the marketplace too. That makes sense because so much of the whole organization is all about how all of these things are interconnected. And it's it's so funny because when you were talking about yourself and your interests, I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds exactly like what I understand is is taproot so like <laughs> it's a great fit for you yeah I mean I, and and my interest in food and stuff has kind of developed but I've always had that connection to the outdoors and I've always loved hiking and that's really a big part of why I wanted to live here I uh, I'll say it. I moved here from Massachusetts, but <laughs> um, no, I really uh, wanted to be part of a community like like we have here in Littleton and in the, the region. And um, it's been a really nice, uh, I won't say surprise, but just learning how uh, much of a community there is around local food and around our the land and everything here has been great. It's definitely one of my favorite parts about being around here, too. Um, So you were talking a little bit about the mission of Taproot, and I love this part on your website where you talk about the purpose of Taproot and say it's to nurture an empathetic world that understands the integrated relationship between healthy food and a healthy environment and appreciates a whole larger than ourselves. So again, that's that's a lot to take in, but again, talking about like all those intersections of food and everything else. So as a food access coordinator, how do you specifically kind of fit into that purpose? Yeah, so I think like you said, that is it can be a little bit of a mouthful, especially if you Like for me, I'm a visual person, so if I don't have those words in front of me, it's like a little bit harder to take it all in. 
But how I would maybe distill that description is finding ways to restore the connections between people, food, and our environment. And I think a lot of the issues that we deal with in the world today are somewhat, in some way, like stem from or are connected to just the ways that those connections have been broken over time. And so in my role as food access coordinator, I simply am trying to expand access to food in the community, but that's a lot more than just giving people food. That is an important piece of it, certainly. But coming back to like those connections between people, food, and our environment, I think that when we are disconnected from our environment and from the land and from where our food comes from, we kind of lose the awareness to know how we might be hurting the world around us or maybe even lose the ability to care if we have so many other things we're worrying about. And it seems like in some ways we're losing knowledge of how to grow food and how to provide for ourselves and knowledge that has been sort of part of humanity for thousands of years. And maybe instead we're becoming more dependent on large companies and we we don't really have that relationship with our food. And I think that all of that leads to a more fragile system like we saw with COVID, right? Like in places, in certain places, there was no food on the grocery store shelves um, or certain products were really hard to get for some time. And I think that with climate change and other, like, maybe it's another COVID or whatever it is, we need to be restoring those connections and strengthening those relationships and just overall working to become more resilient to whatever might come our way. So. That's sort of like the taproot level look at that. But and then in my role, I'm kind of focusing on bringing that philosophy to food access, um, looking for ways to educate people about the land and the and their food, show them how what their role is in the whole thing, because everyone does have a role in our food system, whether you know it or not. Uh, and, and giving people avenues to feel more connected and be active participants. And maybe that looks like growing their own garden, learning about local growers and how they might be able to support them, taking advantage of financial incentive programs to have more buying choices, or even just learning literally about how food is grown. And, and the example that I like to give is that I've talked to people who don't know that a carrot comes from the ground which is sad to me, um, but it's just sort of the way it is when we lose that connection. Yeah, and I really like how you use the word restore, and, like, that was kind of the theme of what you were saying, because it's so true. Like, we once had these connections, and we fully understood them as a society. So something we might talk about later is, like, kind of the overwhelmingness of what, our food system can feel like today, but I think part of that is because people think we're trying to build from scratch in a way and kind of restart everything, but no, like you're saying, like these were connections that were once there, we're just restoring them. Like there's proof that we've done this before, so reasonably said we should be able to get back to them. I totally agree with that. I think yeah, I think a point of hope for me is that we do have a lot of solutions to the huge overwhelming issues that we are dealing with, like with food access and climate change and everything else. It's just finding finding ways to apply those solutions and just help people realize that they do exist and that they can have a role in all of that. And we don't necessarily need to like invent some huge new technology that's going to instantly reverse climate change. There's just a lot of things that we can do that have been done in different ways for centuries or longer. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that, one of the taproot initiatives you cover is gleaning. So first of all, what the heck does that even mean? What is that word, gleaning? (laughs) Yeah, I think, and just to clarify, 
you did not just say cleaning. And that's like what a lot of people hear is if you say the word gleaning and they don't know what that is, they probably think that you misspoke a little and meant to say cleaning. Um, oh, that's funny. Which is kind of ironic because it's not that far off in some ways. But basically, I think of gleaning as food rescue. So there's a lot of perfectly good food that goes to waste, right? I, and and gleaning's goal is to prevent that from happening. So that's collecting um, or harvesting food. Maybe it's at a farmer's market. I've I've heard this from different farmers that go to farmer's markets that just financially and time-wise, it doesn't make sense for them. If they don't sell everything at the market, it takes time and effort for them to repackage all of that transport their produce back to the farm, unpack it, bring it into their walk-in cooler, and, and it's just like makes more sense for their farm to donate or just compost all of that. So that's one thing. Gleaning can also look like getting a group of people together in October and heading over to a farm to clean up the last crop of the season. Maybe the farmer doesn't have their seasonal help anymore. Maybe they're just kind of done with the growing season or for one reason or another there's good food in the field that is not going to be collected and not going to be eaten and might just sit there and so gleaning it, yeah it's it's just preventing however it looks however the food is going to go to waste it's just to prevent that from happening and then that food is collected and given away to um different folks or organizations in the community that can use it and are going to enjoy it. And something I want to ask you to elaborate on a little there is when you said that you go out to collect like the good last crop. So I actually Mm -hmm. went on a couple gleaning trips when I was in college and they were like so much fun and so fulfilling. And Something that I didn't realize was when we got there, the organization was, like, really – they were really quick to correct us that gleaning wasn't – I feel like now I have to really, like, emphasize it. I'm so self-conscious that I'm saying cleaning, like, gleaning. (laughs) With a G. (laughs) With a G. Gleaning with a G. That's what I'm just going to call it. Uh, But they were – they were so – uh, quick about correcting us that gleaning with the G was not just about donating all of the ugly or damaged uh, produce and other food and saying that the produce we were donating was going through similar quality control checks that any store would do. So does taproot gleaning make the same distinction? And like, why is that an important thing do you think yeah it's definitely a distinction that we make we want to avoid donating any food that wouldn't like i need to be able to look at any piece of food that we're donating through gleaning and say yes this is something i would definitely eat i have no like reserves about that i would share this with family or friends and they would enjoy it and we don't want to give out any food that wouldn't otherwise be able to be sold at a market or a store and and the reason for this, in my opinion, is that there can be this kind of snotty notion that some people have that just because something is being given away and maybe it's being given to somebody that doesn't have a lot of resources, that the recipient should be grateful for that, kind of no matter how nice it is. And I think that that implies to the person receiving the donation that they maybe are of a lower class than you or they aren't worthy of the, the better things. And I think that it's it's really hard enough as it is to improve your situation in life without being told that you're worse than other people. And especially, like, it, it's just ironic because the point is to be helping people and sharing with them. And I think if you're giving something second rate and it's obvious, then that has the opposite effect, really. So. Yeah, I I do a quick eye test myself and just say, like, is this something that I would be happy with? And maybe my standard is lower. So I also talk to other people, and we just make sure that (laughs) it's good quality and that there is that level of quality control so that 
we're not having like a negative impact by giving that away. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you said. And I think that's a great way to think about it. Like, would I want to be eating this and would I feel okay serving this to my friends and family? Um, something I think about is I remember back in like elementary school and middle school, we would always have like the food donation drives for the local food pantries and the food bank. And it would just be all of these kids buying just like ramen noodles and like just very what are considered a low rate and like cheap and not Mm -hmm. the most nutritious things. And it's like people can't survive off of that. Like, this is kind of like a, a game or a point system to you. Um, you could probably earn some sort of prize depending on how much you donated. But you also have to think about would I want to eat this too from that, like from the other side. And I think the COVID pandemic kind of opened up, unfortunately opened up a lot of people's eyes to that because then they did end up in those situations. Yeah, it's not about patting ourselves on the back or, like, how much food, like, how many pounds can we donate so much as it is just sharing good food that would otherwise go to waste with people who need it. Like, coming back to the ugly or damaged produce, there are still, like, there's plenty of ways that that food can go to good use, too. I mean... Like, pigs aren't going to make a distinction between ugly produce or good-looking <laughs> produce, right? They're not going to feel bad if you dump some a huge pile of, like, B-grade food into their pen. They're going to love it. Or if it's farther gone than that, like, the compost pile is a great place for that, too, where it can be brought back into the food cycle in a different way. Yes, we love completing the cycle. We love filling up that circle. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of, like, the food cycle, something I've been want, kind of thinking about is, like, why do you think there's so much focus on food waste at the end of the food cycle versus, like, the beginning? I mean, the phrase always goes, you hear moms yelling at their kids to like eat everything on their plate so it doesn't go to waste but no one's ever like turning around and yelling at the moms or the farmers for planting so much food that they're never going to use in the first place. So like there's not, something's missing there to me. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what immediately came to mind with that question is like recycling of plastic or metal or glass or whatnot. And I think it's, sort of similar like we have reduce reuse recycle and it's a lot easier for people to see or like it's it's much more visible in both the food cycle and a product life cycle like the end stage the waste and that's where we might feel like we can have a difference the reducing or the reusing or like planting the right amount or buying the right amount can be more maybe vague or murkier or like not as clear cut even though it might have more of an impact in the long run and i'm gonna go on a little bit of a tangent here if that's okay (laughs) we we support tangents it's okay perfect um i think that and i can only really speak to this country because i have never lived in a different country but i think that there's a lot of marketing and messaging that feeds into the focus on the the later stage as opposed to the earlier stage of the food cycle or the product cycle. It's hard to avoid seeing all sorts of ads all the time and marketing. And I think that bigger companies tend to build up what I would consider like a culture of scarcity where people feel like they have to buy more or get as much stuff as they can, and that's going to help them have a better life or maybe, like, make it or get ahead of other people. And there's millions and millions and millions of dollars spent on these ads, and they're kind of encouraging that way of thinking while also shifting responsibility to the consumer 
as far as like solving climate change or solving issues like that. Um, and I think the example that I think of all the time is when somebody tells you like, you should stop driving your car if we want to solve climate change. But meanwhile, the Exxons of the world have absolutely no intention of cutting their emissions unless it's going to make them money. And so it's just like the allegory there, I guess, is that the action that we take and the mom yelling at the kids to eat everything on their plate so it's not wasted, it it's sort of like built into our psyche almost through all of that messaging. And of course, I'm not trying to say that individual actions don't matter because they do. But I think looking at the root causes of these issues, while it may be more difficult and less visible and is kind of covered up by marketing, uh, can be a larger payoff. So that's my tangent. Um, <laughs> I think that all of that contributes to our ideas on how to solve problems. And a big part of the work at Taproot is to try and help people see the full picture when it comes to their food cycle and find ways that they can plug in at the different stages to make a difference. I'm so glad you went on the tangent because I I loved every part of it and I think it I I fully agree with everything you said. I think when you were talking I saw another reason that could be that people tend to take action at the the end versus the beginning or really like take one choice over another is like going back to the patting yourself on the back kind of ideal mm-hmm. that we always want to self-congratulate and be congratulatory or and get uh thanks from others is like it's very easy for someone to see me recycling and for me to be like hey look everyone I recycled or I went and bought this water bottle um, that's made from recycled materials or I bought this reusable water bottle so I'm not going to use plastic anymore versus like you can't really go around I mean you could but people don't go around shouting like hey I didn't buy this water bottle because I didn't need any Mm-hmm. Like it's it's the the culture of wanting to be thanked for your actions and wanting to be able to show them to everyone, especially with social media and the rise of influencers at every level, that it it just has to be visible all the time and that beginning part of the not planting things and the reducing at the first step of the reduce, reuse, recycle chain, like those aren't, those don't really fit into the culture as well as things at the latter stage do. Yeah, for sure. Like what's more visible to the average person? The charity that's giving a lot of water to some town that isn't well off or maybe like the human rights group that's working to actually to like change policies that will fix that issue in the long term. I think one of those is much more visible than the other. Yeah, and it's it's funny another thing that you said that made me think of this was with the recent big sports event, go sports, the big the big game <laughs> that companies spent all of this money on buying ads to tell people that they donated to these various organizations, whether they be food access, climate-related, etc. But it's like you could have saved all that money that you spent to buy the ad to donate even more. But there's this, like, pick me, like, choose me, look at what I did that we need to acknowledge what these companies did, just like we acknowledge when we see someone we know recycling, like put our energy elsewhere. Yeah, I think you might be referring to a certain pizza company uh, that ran an ad for something like $100 million that gave like $1 million to small businesses and the ad to talk about that $1 million cost 100 times more. Oh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I, I it's frustrating. Say, yeah. 
I feel like I could spend, like, forever down this hole, and I would love to sometime, but maybe not this time. Um, so another question, though, I have is, so both the co-op and Taproot do most of their work in this, like, northern New Hampshire, northern Vermont area where everything is so culturally still pretty agrarian. Um, you know, we're seeing maybe in Littleton, like, a little bit more city life, if you could call it that. But still, overall, we're still at, like, the agrarian level. So do you think, either from personal experience or from the work you do, do you think this makes people more appreciative of the food that comes from the land? Or is it a sort of situation where there's a farm every five miles, so people don't really think about it and they kind of take advantage of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, well, first of all, it's funny that you mentioned Littleton, the city, because I spent a fair amount of time in Coas County and have heard more than once Littleton referred to as the big city, <laughs> unironically. <laughs> and see, like, my mom is from New York City, so, like, she would absolutely, like, kill me for, like, even making <laughs> that suggestion. But it's true. I mean, we have, you can get most things that you need in Littleton without driving more than five or ten minutes. But anyway, that's not, that's neither here nor there. Back to your question (laughs) about people being more or less appreciative of local food. I think it's kind of both in some ways. There's a lot of people that I know in the area who maybe they grew up on a farm or they still live on a farm or have connections with farms and are very much tied in and appreciative of that local food system. And I think there's people who have no clue about any of that and for one reason or another aren't connected to the local food system or really know where their food comes from. And and it can be something that we take for granted too. I'm definitely guilty of this. I think that when COVID hit, in some ways, like, I was privileged enough living here where there were a lot of aspects of my life that didn't change that much compared to my friends who live in Boston area or other other cities or other places. And so that can we can definitely take it for granted. Yeah, I, so I think it's a little bit of everything. But you mentioned northern New Hampshire and Vermont, and I notice a big difference and a distinction between the two states, too, when it comes to this. I think, uh, from what I know, New Hampshire and northern New Hampshire in particular has historically had a lot more to do with the logging industry than agriculture. And Vermont, on the flip side, has a lot more focus on agriculture. And it seems to me that currently the two state governments have different priorities in this area. I think the you know, the co-op recently posted that event at the Opera House about the farm to school bill in New Hampshire that was viewed by a lot of people as being like a shoe-in, like a win-win for everybody, but that was shut down. And uh, so I'd say that the different histories and political approaches between New Hampshire and Vermont can play a big role in whether people are aware of their local food system or not and are able to appreciate it. That's really interesting. I would never... As someone, so I'll admit that I am also from Massachusetts, um, but... I'll forgive it, because I am. (laughs) It's in my nature to kind of still clump New Hampshire and Vermont together, so I would never think to really make a distinction between them, because even physically, you know, driving across the border, unless there's like a sign, sometimes you can't even realize it. But that does make sense that there's the political aspect that really influences the culture and then that goes into the food and then people's understanding. So, like, I think the theme of the the episode today is, like, everything is connected. Uh, that's a great way of putting it, yeah. It's funny because state lines, you know, it's just like a line that somebody made on a map, basically. And yeah. When we talk about local food, I mean, there's a taproot, like, 
it's it's a, it can be a lot easier to get food from Vermont than from southern New Hampshire most times. So so like distance wise, it, the the line means nothing. But then when you talk about the culture and the history, that those otherwise arbitrary lines can really play a big role. So it's just funny in thinking about how we consider our region and what our local food system is. Yeah, yeah. So switching gears a little bit, another food access project you oversee is the Lancaster Community Garden. So for those who don't know, can you describe, like, what a community garden space is and what it brings to the community? Like, is it just a matter of extra garden space for people who buy it? Like, how does it, how does it all work? Yeah, so I think in my view and in Taproot's view, a community garden in general is a place where all types of people – whether you're an experienced gardener or you know nothing about gardening or where you're from or, like, it doesn't matter. Anybody can come together in a space and grow their own food, meet their neighbors and the people around them, and kind of have conversations and learn learn a lot about topics related to food and gardening and community. And we also have, at the Lancaster Community Garden, we have different events and programs that try to facilitate all of that. And I think a big piece of it is that we are trying to remove the barriers that might exist for different people to grow their own food. Like the biggest one, obviously, is having land because most times you need soil and land to grow food. And a lot of people, myself included, live in apartments or spaces that don't have yards or just like aren't suitable for that. So that's a big one. And then you don't need to have a lot of money to have a garden uh, with the community garden model. Generally, I'd say like we try to remove that financial barrier as well. And it's not very much money to rent a bed at the community garden. And if it's still too much money, we have need-based scholarships as well. So we provide space guidance and there's a tool shed full of tools and just those are some of the ways that we try to help give them the ability to have a garden and grow their own food and kind of have that connection to the land and to their food. And apart from that, it's just, I think it's a really nice thing that every town should have, just a, a green space full of things growing where people can walk around and spend time in. And this is the case in Lancaster. You don't have to rent a garden plot to be able to walk through the garden and smell the flowers and look at the butterflies and all the rest of it. It can just be a really nice space to be in. That's awesome. I think I love that part. I don't want to say most of all, but it's something that even if you're not directly benefiting from it by using one of the plots, you can still see it, you can experience it, and you can appreciate it. And, you know, it's it's pretty obvious to say that a garden is prettier than just like a pile of dirt or like concrete or whatever was in the space before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just going to, you just said whatever was there before and I'm not sure, people that grew up in the area or lived in the area for some time probably know this, but the what was there before the Lancaster Community Garden was an old hotel. So the garden is built in the parking lot of what used to be a hotel, the Elms. So a little bit different from what was there 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, but it's it's definitely different structure-wise, but kind of funny that it's the same theme of, like, a place where people come together and and a community, in a sense, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for towns to have those places where you don't have to have anything in particular to be there like you don't have to have a government issued id you don't have to you know we there's more and more i would i see public spaces like that disappearing or we have to fight for them to continue to exist like libraries or parks or what what have you just places where people can just be without having to worry that they're going to be I don't know. You know what I'm getting at, but... Yeah, I definitely do. Like, 
And two, an important part of that is, like, it's not a place where you have to spend money. Definitely. Like you can go there and, you, like you said, you can just be there. Yeah. So is there any connection between taproot gleaning and the community garden, or they just, like, happen to be two separate things that you oversee? <laughs> well, I'd say with all of our food access programs, there's sort of that, like, philosophical connection with what – they may be different programs, but they're all trying to get at the same issues or, or solve the same things. But more concretely than that, there is a direct connection between gleaning with the G, again, and the Lancaster Community Garden. Part of my role as food access coordinator is to, with the help of volunteers, grow some of the raised beds and donate all the produce from those beds to the community, which is more or less like what gleaning hopes to accomplish. In this case, it's less of like reducing food waste, but it's still trying to obtain food to donate to people, to our neighbors who need it. And so that food, any food grown in those six raised beds, that food is distributed to the food pantries, senior centers, uh, youth programs, and just different community partner organizations that we work with. And building on that a little bit, too, um, one of the other programs that Taproot, under the food access umbrella at Taproot, is called the Plantero program and this is basically where folks can grow a row of their garden or as much of their garden as they want really and then donate that food and we will distribute it to people who need it and some of these folks do this with their gardens at home which is great if they have that but then a few there's been a few people that have utilized um beds in the community garden for the same purpose so it's not just taproot growing food it's there's really generous people out there who have contributed to that as well that's awesome so you don't even have to be a member of the lancaster community garden or any community garden to be a part of that donating you can just have have your own yeah and that plant a row is kind of a way of organizing that process but there's also a lot of people who just donate say they end up with a lot of tomatoes and they don't want to freeze them all or something they'll bring them in on a random day and we'll distribute those as well. So just a quick plug that we accept food donations. You don't have to be part of any formal program in order to have your extra food connected with the community. Awesome. So another thing, and I think this kind of relates to something we were talking about earlier, Taproot is really big on differentiating between food security and food sovereignty. So I'd love it if you could explain what those are, like what's the difference, and then why one might be better than the other, it sounds like. Yeah, I think I could kind of like cobble together my own description definitions of this, but we have this quote on our website that I think describes it probably most succinctly and best. So if it's okay with you, I'm probably, I'll just read that quote and maybe talk a little bit about it. Of course. So the quote is, food sovereignty is different from food security in both approach and politics. Food security does not distinguish where food comes from or the conditions under which it is produced and distributed. National food security targets are often met by sourcing food produced under environmentally destructive and exploitative conditions and supported by subsidies and policies that destroy local food producers but benefit agribusiness corporations. Food sovereignty emphasizes ecologically appropriate production, distribution, and consumption, social economic justice, and local food systems as ways to tackle hunger and poverty and guarantee sustainable food security for all peoples, end quote. So that quote is from Nailani, and I may be pronouncing that wrong, but it was a collection convening of different countries, different folks from all sorts of organizations and movements across the world that came together in 2007 in Mali with the goal of strengthening food sovereignty worldwide as 
food access has increasingly become an issue, especially across the world, that was obviously necessary. And so that that collection of different entities still put out a newsletter and they are still involved in different work across the world. But going back to that quote, I think food security, when we talk about that, the approach to addressing that can often focus on like getting people enough calories, period. And that's Mm -hmm. the only or primary goal. And so going back to what Taproot, sort of the theme of all of this is the connections, right? So when you only focus on that one thing, there's a lot that, that gets lost. I think the quality of the food, like we talked about with gleaning, can get lost if, you know, some big company is just dumping a boatload of ramen on a food pantry and saying, hey, we fixed the food security issue here. <laughs> That's a lot different from, you know, a balanced like healthy diet. So that's one thing. And then the quote also touched on how the food is sourced and produced. I think there's there's a lot of like labor issues involved in, in that. There's a lot of environmental issues tied up in that. And so we have to take that kind of full system view of it to really address these issues. And that's what food sovereignty is. And then another piece is kind of looking at the culture of an area and keeping that culture alive. And so like what food food is such a big thing in culture. It's it's been a way in all of human history that people come together and is so important to different celebrations and traditions and so I think keeping that alive is is um a piece of food sovereignty as well. Yeah, and I think, too, a big part of it is recognizing our spot as Americans in, like, the whole food system. So what you're saying with the idea of how it's produced and the labor, and so it's like if we get all of these, if we get everyone the food that they need, if it's healthy or if it's not, in either case, if it's produced, by, you know, child labor, labor, slave labor, all of that, like, okay, great, we solved one problem, but we completely exacerbated another one. And then, too, I really like how you said about how food is such a big part of culture, and it's important to make sure people are getting culturally specific food. And, again, it's if we're just donating a one-size-fits-all approach to whether it be different American communities or if we're taking this globally, like that's that's not really helpful. That's not what they need. That's just what we think that those people need, and that's what we kind of want to give to, again, pat ourselves on the back. Yeah, definitely. I think that approach can really steamroll over a lot of important things or, like you said, make things worse in other areas. So. That that quote has always really spoken to me. I think it sums it up really well. And it, it was eye-opening when I first read that. I just, I mean, I had kind of thought about all of those different things and how they were connected, but, but just having it put that way is very clear. Yeah, I think that's a great quote. Thank you for, for sharing that. Of course. So now, since I guess this is technically like our Earth Day-themed episode – touching a little bit more on the environment specifically. So another thing you had on your website was where you say, we believe that everyone has a right to live in a healthy environment and that connecting people to place through their food is a leverage point for care for the environment. Can you just speak to that a little more, break that down a little bit? Definitely. This is something that I think about a lot personally because when I grew up, I mentioned that I spent a lot of time in the mountains and in the woods and stuff and just hiking and running. I was also growing up in an agricultural area, but I think in a lot of ways, I thought of those two things as being distinctly separate. Like, here's human civilization on one hand and this is the wilderness or the environment on the other hand. And something that has to be protected and separated. 
And I think that when still to this, like a lot of people talk about the environment, they think of that maybe it's a pristine forest where it's just all the animals are running around and everything and it's totally removed from humanity and from human civilization. And I guess what I've learned over the years is just that that's quite historically inaccurate and also not realistic for most places in the world today. Going back centuries and millennia, people have always had an impact on our environment because we're part of it. I don't think it's it's not productive to think of ourselves as separate from the environment because we're always going to need a place to live. We're always going to need a place to get our food from, whether that's growing it or hunting and gathering or what have you. So we will always have an impact, but that doesn't have to be a negative thing necessarily. You know, it can be a positive impact if we are growing our food in such a way and living in a way that's kind of mutually beneficial for us and for all the other pieces of the environment and the ecosystem. Doing that requires us to act thoughtfully, and I think that to do that, is we also have to have that intimate connection to place, and that's what Taproot is trying to do. I share your sentiment about growing up. It's like, okay, like that's the environment, but like this is me. And there are probably some people who maybe grew up in this area where culturally we do tend to mix those two, so they might have a better understanding. But I'd say generally for most of the rest of, I don't know, the country, like they share the same idea of like separation, but it's it's not just that the environment is the flora and the fauna, as you were saying, like we are part of the environment. And if we want to continue to have this feeling of needing to control everything in the environment, like that's not going to work out. Um, and we need to, we need to work on our control issues. <laughs> yeah. We can't protect a little sliver of quote unquote untouched wilderness when we're destroying the rest of the planet to produce everything that we use in our society, including food. What You know, that's going to just result in a smaller and smaller piece of wilderness until it's gone, and then everything will kind of be trampled. We have to figure out ways to connect to place, and yes, including in our food growing and uh, agriculture, so that that doesn't happen. Yeah. So kind of wrapping up here, we've talked about, like, a lot of heavy subjects today, and I think even both of us, you can kind of hear, like, the, not panic, I don't want to say, like, (laughs) existential dread, I don't know, um, that we've both kind of had underlying this whole time. And I think a lot of people have that, especially when things come up about the environment, Earth Day, climate change, At this point, you know, day-to-day living, (laughs) politics, what be it not. But it's easy to feel so helpless and just feel like you have to be a passive participant and just, you know, listen to the news, do the doom scrolling and all of that. And Mm -hmm. even now, we've definitely talked about, you know, all the positive stuff that Taproot is doing and that we've seen in our communities But I'm sure there are people listening who are like, well, I don't garden, I can't volunteer, like, I have to worry about my own family's food source, like, I can't really think about donating for other people. So how can we leave people with something that, like, anyone can do to improve our food systems and and the environment in their own environment and that's like a obviously um a big ask and and there's no probably real way to apply it to everyone because there are so many things about each and every one of you that we can't take into control but what's a what's a pretty generalized like advice and a positive step forward we could leave with people today yeah that's it is a really big question but i think even stepping away from food systems for a second, I think the first thing that we have to all do is find something in our lives that give us hope for the future and for 
having a good life. And I, and I think whatever that is, like, if you find that, latch on to it and figure out how you can keep that going because it is so easy to just sort of disconnect and say, well, this is all too much for me and I'm just going to forget about it. But I think if you find that thing that gives you hope, it, it can really put you in a place where you have more capacity to make change in your community. So I guess going back to the food stuff specifically, I think a very general thing that anybody can do, just about anybody can do, regardless of your situation, is to learn about the environment you're in. And whether that's going outside and taking a walk instead of watching TV one day or reading a book about what's going on or listening to a podcast, right? Or stopping in at a farm stand, talking to your farmer that's down the road. I think that getting the lay of the land like that helps you figure out what is going on in your specific community. And I think that there's not some big solution that applies that fixes some problem everywhere. So we have to look at things from a community level. And yeah, if you know what's going on in your community, it makes it that much easier to connect to it and figure out how you might be involved with your specific skills and background and interests. But I think another general thing is that everybody should grow food in some way or another. And yeah, whether that's at a community garden or at home, if you have a garden or a lawn, or if you don't, just like get a little bin or a pot and even plant like one thing and that that's going to start you down <laughs> a lifetime of wanting to grow food. But like I said, I live in a small apartment and there's no yard and I don't really have a space to have a garden, but I've had pot, potted plants like tomatoes, peppers, greens, different things. And you can put that in your driveway or on your porch or whatever. And that might not seem like a big thing, but in my opinion, it's, it can't be overstated, um, the importance of being able to grow your own plants and eating food that you pretty much brought into existence. I think it's, it's a powerful thing. And so going up a little bit, like to, uh, shopping, like our dollars have power, right? Like they tell the places that we're buying from that they can continue to sell that way and that that's where the demand is. And even if you don't have a lot of money, I think there's a number of different programs like SNAP, um, which was formerly called Food Stamps, but Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, that um, make it more possible to make choices with food you're buying and where it's coming from and how affordable it is. And so take, take, finding out about those programs and what you can do with that can make a big difference and can kind of alleviate that feeling that you have to buy certain food just because that's what's affordable. And I think, yeah, and along those lines of shopping, places like the co-op and the taproot marketplace and farms themselves have certain arrangements and sales and deals that I I try to take advantage of those whenever I can. And just being able to basically vote with your dollar. And then the last thing is if if you feel like you can, I think especially in smaller towns, Getting involved with local town politics is can be very impactful. Um, not that that's the most thrilling thing for most people, but I found that you can make your voice heard in a small town. And when there's not that many people that live here, your percentage of the people is that much greater. So you can make a difference through that, too, and support your local growers. Yeah, I, I love all of that advice, and I think it is very pretty much applicable to everyone and even I don't know just talking about it we're talking on kind of like a dreary day and I'm thinking about like oh what's my what are my things that like keep me going and what's my hopeful thing and I'm I'm just now even feeling like more energized so I, I'd say it's already working <laughs> oh that's sweet me. thank you um, yeah it's, it's snowing it's gray like the sun is almost going down and I uh, have been thinking a lot about just, like, plants growing again 
and just that color of green that you can see when that when the plants are first coming up in the spring and all that. And oh yes, I'm so excited. It's going to be great, and there is a lot to be hopeful about. Um, I think it's just a matter of finding it and being connected to it. Yeah. So speaking of spring and rebirth and hope and all of that, what's next for Taproot? And maybe with that, if you have any ideas or hopes about what's next for food access in the North Country. Yeah, I think as far as Taproot goes, we have for some time now been really anticipating our move into the renovated PJ Noise building in Main Street on Lancaster. So our marketplace and our offices and everything are going to move into that space pretty soon. And that'll really enable us to offer more programming, support more growers in the store. We're going to have a commercial kitchen, so different programming and opportunities with that. And that's really exciting. I think just continuing to sort of scale up the work that we're doing in different ways, having that new space is going to be great for that. I I would love to see more community gardens in the North Country and just more more small farms that are offering CSAs and stuff. And I do see this as a trend. I think there's a lot of people, even since COVID, that their eyes, like, they have become more aware of the importance of our local food system and how that impacts food access. And uh, there's more and more people that are moving to rural or agrarian areas like the North Country, and I hope that those people will want to plug into our food system and contribute and just continue kind of this growing awareness of how we can uh, improve our food system and become more resilient. And it's exciting. I, I get really excited thinking about it. I do too. And how can everyone else stay up to date with all the excitement with the move and just learn more about Taproot and your program specifically? How can we stay in touch with you? Yeah, um, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and we our website is taprootnh.org. And if you go on our website, you, you can find out more about our programs and get in touch with us and sign up for our email newsletter if you like. And uh, I'd say, best of all, if you're in Lancaster, stop in and say hello. We have our marketplace, and I, I'm often there and can come on down and say hi and talk about food access. And, yeah, go visit the community garden in Lancaster, too. Awesome. Well, everyone, you heard him. And, Chris, thank you so much for having this conversation with me and with us, I guess you could say, <laughs> and celebrating food access food sovereignty and the good old earth day yeah thanks anastasia i really appreciated this opportunity to chat with you and for all of your thoughtful questions thank you again for listening to another episode of that's rad a podcast presented by the Littleton Food Co-op. I hope you got as much out of my conversation with Chris as I did, including those feelings of hope and a positive outlook on the future of our food systems there at the end. Chris and I actually talked a while ago, but I purposefully saved this interview for April. I think of it as a time when good, fresh food is on our minds with garden planting quickly approaching, And at the same time, environmentalism is taking center stage with celebrations like Earth Day and Arbor Day right around the corner. So I hope this positively contributed to some thoughts already swirling around in your mind. And if not, it gave you something new to think about until we can officially, officially say that warm weather is here to stay in the North Country. Because as I said in the beginning, you just never really know. If you liked what you heard here today, make sure to let us know. The best way to let us know you like our content is literally liking our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening. 
You can also follow That's Rad to be the first to know when new episodes drop each month. While you're there, we have a whole library of past episodes on a range of co-op foodie subjects for you to enjoy. And if there's not something there you'd like to see, let us know, and we might just turn your idea into a reality. But until next time, remember to eat, sleep, and be rad. That's Rad is a production of the Littleton Food Co-op. Anastasia Marr directs and hosts. Jesse Smith and Annie Stewart produce. Becky Colpitz provides unrelenting positivity and moral support. The Littleton Food Co-op is Littleton, New Hampshire's community-owned grocery store. We put our money where your mouth wants to be. Local farms, of course. No membership is required to shop here. Come check us out sometime just off exit 41 at 43 Bethlehem Road in Littleton. Or if you're online, check us out at littletoncoop.com.